Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh podcast. So I know you may have missed a certain word there. Fitness has gone from the title of the podcast. So it has completely rebranded because I feel the guests that are coming on and stuff like that with kind of like the mental health side of things, anxiety side of things, trauma, all that kind of, and athletes and the nutrition stuff is hugely interesting. And it's, it's important for the, the, the clients that we work with on a daily basis is important for you guys as well. But I also want to bring another element of interest into it. So people can apply it to their lives outside of fitness because fitness isn't for everyone. Fitness comes in all shapes and sizes in relation to whether it's fitness exercise wise or nutrition wise, or else it's just walking with mates or whatever it may be. So it's, it's important to kind of have that side. And that's kind of why I've decided to kind of rebrand it. So Today is Coach's Corner Volume 20, and it is an audience Q&A that has kind of come in through questions from clients, questions through the group coaching program that we also do, and kind of things that we've kind of spotted kind of coming up a little bit more through kind of those side of things. So Dallas, how are we, sir? Good, good, good. Bar a chipped ego, more like chipped twos. <laughs> and that man bun, you're, you're rocking. Yeah, I'm right. I'm like pre- prepping for my sumo wrestling days, just getting ready, you know? Yeah, you're just carb loaded. <laughs> uh, it's like, I'm gonna, yeah, if anyone's watching the video right now, you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> it looks like a mushroom on the top of his head. Uh, it's like uh, those emojis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so the the topics that we're going to talk about today are, are cortisol tests worth the money or reliable? And if not, then how to manage the stress better. We talk about reasons for food cravings, which is one of those kind of double-edged swords. Uh, how to stop being impatient. We talk about why is adrenal fatigue an actual thing? And there's been a new paper kind of come out recently on it. Uh, thoughts on protein bias for protein? Because I think this is one of those topics that got, gets like hate. The DMs came, came through yesterday on my post. I got hate. Uh, so Dallas, I think we're going to start with yourself on this one in relation to our cortisol tests worth the money or reliable, and if not, how to manage the stress better. Also, I think starting off before just diving into saying yes, no, maybe I don't know, and then repeat the kind of intro to Malcolm in the middle. Um, we're going to start off in terms of what like cortisol is in a sense, how everybody knows cortisol. Cortisol is considered obviously the stress hormone for a lot of people. It should be considered one of the stress hormones because epinephrine is another part of the stress hormone. So essentially, if you want to think about it, cortisol goes through, it's about roughly six main pathways. So one of those six pathways, if you want to think about it, is promotes a breakdown of protein into amino acids. So if it's continuously high, we often see protein breakdown. Um, we often see that it supports glucagon. So, so the whole aspect in glucagon is the creation of new glucose. So if you want to think about it, when stress occurs, the whole point of cortisol is to mobilize energy so that way we can actually keep going and keep doing whatever is occurring thanks to the stressor. It also serves as an insulin antagonist. So what we mean by that is it actually helps stop glucose uptake. So if you want to think about it, when cortisol is occurring, we'll see uh, obviously a drop in insulin. Very good thing. We see it promotes triglyceride breakdown. So what that really means, it's fat breakdown. So what it's trying to do is break down the fat and put it into the bloodstream that can be used. So now don't expect cortisol to be the very essence of why you're sprinting or winning a hundred meter race. It's the very reason why you can carry on doing endurance aspect. So it is thinking about more of the energy from that one. Other aspects, I think what that was four. The two other um, pathways come to suppressing the immune system. So that's one of the functions. And then as well as too high of cortisol then creates a negative calcium balance. So it's not a good thing overall if it's negatively high. Uh, another aspect from that is thinking about cortisol is very much a very, very important hormone within the body. Um, if you want to think about it, it's got it's very protective a bit against hypoglycemia, but it's also very protective in terms of how the brain functions. So your brain actually needs cortisol in the body to ensure that it's got a sparing of glucose to ensure the brain can still function. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. And then the last little bit from the cortisol is that it is produced by the adrenal glands. So that means that when it's being produced, it's often going to be produced with the likes of like adrenaline or epinephrine. 
in a sense. So what's occurring is in that sense, you get in that fight or flight system and about 60-ish minutes if you're in exercise or you're noticing, say, a chronic stressor, a psychological stressor, you'll see cortisol start to peak. Start to peak. So that's that aspect. So now we know, obviously, it comes from adrenals. We've got an idea of the pathways it goes through. So when it comes to testing, we use a urine collection, we use a saliva collection, or we could use some hair strands, right? When you're doing it, the issues that arrive with it, right, comes predominantly through how you bring, or should I say, how you collect your sample for testing. So what a lot of people don't realize is that cortisol grows through peaks and bounds, so peaks and troughs technically throughout the day. And there's so many moment-to-moment fluctuations thanks to transient stresses. So if you want to think about like a psychological stressor, a food is a stressor, um, exercise is a stressor, daily life is a stressor. So you're going to see it being peaked up and down pretty much throughout the day. In the morning, it should be the highest. In the evening, theoretically, it should be the lowest. But because of the highs and ups and lows, what ends up occurring, it makes it really hard to truly get a proper baseline. And this is one of the issues when taking our one sample for cortisol. You're like, I'm taking it at two o'clock in the day, and that's going to tell me everything about my cortisol. It won't. You're taking it at a particular part of the time of the day. And the only way to get past that is essentially taking a 24-hour urine uh, sample. So that way we can see the elevations per hour base. So usually it's done in a more controlled manner so we can see it. Where if we do an evening saliva test, we're getting a base in and around the evening, but we're only getting a little snapshot and we don't truly know what's occurring. So you can kind of take all three of the tests and put them together to get a very clear understanding of what's happening with your cortisol. But everyone just thinks that if you take your cortisol shot, or should I say draw it, you're going to end up getting accurate representation of your cortisol, which is not exactly, not how it's actually going to occur. So that's one issue. Then another issue is we'll see when people end up taking cortisol um, test could be when they are, say, pregnant. Post-pregnancy is also going to be an issue. And the reason be- be- behind the issue is that is we often see a higher cortisol response because of pregnancy and post-pregnancy. But also another aspect that comes from it is anyone taking contraceptive pills. We often see that CHB cortisol, no, sorry. CGB, so cortisol binding goblin, is often increased with estrogen, which are um, kind of supplemented with estrogen pills. So any of the contraceptives increases. And then what ends up happening is because more of the cortisol is binding, you're going to see an increase in your cortisol test. So often if you're taking a contraceptive pill and going for a cortisol test, you want to obviously come off it. Everyone's always like, oh, but we've done podcasts on that. So that means that if you happen to be either pregnant, post-pregnancy, or happen to be on the actual contraceptive pill and going for a test, we're going to see elevated uh, cortisol levels, and they're not truly indicative of you being, say, highly stressed, for instance. I know that was a lot, actually. And in relation to, say, someone who is postnatal, which is yep. post-pregnancy, um, and someone is breastfeeding, would the cortisol be higher for that for that woman yes and that usually comes down to not only the psychological effect of the breastfeeding so it puts a lot of stresses on the mother in the beginning to get used to it and kind of relax into it also because of that post um, pregnancy it is quite a stressful environment for mothers in general to try and get used to the environment the changes in the body and the whole aspect so you often see such a higher increase of cortisol during that time and it starts to lower off very quickly but that depends on some people though so it's like and this is also like you can i think if we've spoken marginally about it but high cortisol levels when you are breastfeeding can actually be passed on to the kid even during gestation, you can see that you kind of predispose a kid to a higher cortisol level if the mother happens to be in a position where she's stressed for most of her pregnancy, which is crazy because that means now the person, the child growing up is naturally going to be in terms of more susceptible to cortisol spikes. They're going to be more susceptible to, say, stress. 
to kind of predispose them in a sense. So when it comes to that whole breastfeeding thing, you kind of want to obviously take time, relax, and bring that aspect of cortisol down. In the beginning, there is not much you can do because it is such a new thing to the body. So you're naturally going to be creating a stressor to the body. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize that. I don't think a lot of like new moms realize that because you're also going to be sleep deprived. So that's a stress around the body on top of it. Plus, you're trying to have so like hopefully having some sort of boundaries for yourself. It's about having that that E word that I talk about an awful lot, which is having empathy towards yourself on that side of things and realizing that this is going to be a difficult time, a difficult transition for both parties. And it's important to have that relationship there, that communication skills there mm-hmm. to say, right, if one person maybe not be pulling their weight, it's important for that person to like say, to make sure that they are there as often as possible or do shifts or do whatever. Yeah. And it is important to kind of have that. So if you were to give a sum up of what you just said regarding cortisol tests, what would it be in a quick synopsis? Are they worth the money or reliable? If you're doing a 24-hour urine test to truly understand it, yes. But there needs to be a, a, a very good reason why. So it's, I feel stressed is not a good enough reason to go do it because it's just going to be like, well, deal with your stress. It's, are you noticing issues with hypercortalism? So are you noticing striations on your stomach where there's fat deposition? Are you noticing more fat deposition on the hump of your back? Are you noticing your face go into more like a moonlight structure? So like what we're talking about is Cushing's disease. So it's like, if you're noticing these things, then a 24-hour urine cycle or sample test is definitely needed. But other than that, you end up spending a lot of money, if especially for a lot of people do saliva tests, to get one snapshot in time. And you're like, that one snapshot is not giving you everything there is. And that's the biggest drawback to them. So it's like, if you are stressed, there's no real point in going to go get a cortisol test unless you start noticing actual issues when it comes with hypercortalism. So that's how I would do it. Work on your stress first. And that's the biggest thing. And then for those mothers, one thing you can at least use to lower your overall cortisol sense is the pair bonding between you and your child. So that means the better attachment you can create with your child and the more you can sync, so it's like the synchrony effect, you start seeing a higher oxytocin release. And that oxytocin is going to then obviously relax you, but it's going to sync your heartbeat with the child, which is amazing, like absolutely amazing. Staring into the child's eyes, you feel its heartbeat, it starts to feel you, you start connecting and synchronizing that point. It starts to lower your cortisol. So it's like amazing, but that's what you need to be doing for pretty much most of the child's life. Obviously, it's not going to be breastfeeding for the rest of its life, but it's that whole synchrony effect is can be applied through anything and everything when it comes to um, social interaction. So in terms of like the two of us, when we're, in, we're, when we're talking with each other, we end up getting to the point where our heartbeats start to synchronize. We're able to connect and slow our breathing patterns start to sync up. And that's because the attachment is there. So if you form that attachment, you'll start knowing overall stress response will go down because you're in a safe place and more oxytocin is released. So that's something for the mothers to kind of help combat that early psychological stress. I think that's fantastic advice of what you just said there about that, that the importance of that, of that um, bond because it is at that stage where that bond is going to be formed or, or made, made or broken. And I think that could be another stressor being put on someone else and being trying to be the best mother they can or parent they can. And that's important that that's as long like if you are trying, but that's all you can really do. Okay. And I think it's important that like, as you said, if like get to the roots of your stress first, rather than kind of spending money aimlessly when you really could just have more boundaries in place, yeah. stopping work earlier, doing more walks, Get, actually getting some exercise talking to people talking to a counselor talking to a therapist talking to someone yep. those kind of things are priceless rather than trying to go for a test just to tell you what you know already 
but then probably what will happen is when you get those results you probably won't do anything with the results you're just like oh i'm you know latch on to that identity that i have a high cortisol rate and then you'll like you'll just live that life continuously and you won't change anything if you know you're stressed already if you know boundaries and you're working mental errors already mm. you know you're stressed so it's important to look at well what what things can you put in place we spoke we had a boundaries episode as well so i'm not going to go into boundaries again but one of the things that has kind of come up on top of the the the, the stress side of things is the the the, the kind of the recent paper kind of like on, on adrenal fatigue mm. and kind of low energy and tiredness are two very very common themes that kind of come in with doctors and gps and people coming to us like i feel i feel these symptoms and it's kind of like they're they're looking for a diagnosis but these could be more of a thing to do with fatigue from stress yeah. more than anything else they kind of like doctors will kind of do as much exploratory work and detective work and looking at history physical exams doing a hormone test blood test to rule out everything which i think is hugely important anyway to get regular blood tests and hormone tests and screenings for girls and if your doctor or your gp refuses to get your hormone test tell them to fuck off and go get a new doctor um the results often yield no real exp explanations and then that can be frustrating for the clinician and also for the patients itself without getting a pure diagnosis and there is this attractive label or an attractive theory that kind of gets attached to that person then which is that they have adrenal fatigue mm. which links stress exposure to adrenal exhaustion as a possible cause for the lack of energy but we have to look at but is adrenal fatigue a real disease and this is where we need to look at that so we need to understand what the what the adrenals actually do in the body so the adrenals are two small glands that sit on top of the kidneys and produce several hormones among them cortisol which dallas has spoken about already when under stress, we produce and release short bursts of cortisol into the bloodstream. The adrenal fatigue theory suggests that prolonged exposure to stress could drain the adrenals leading to a low cortisol state. The adrenal depletion could cause brain fog, low energy, depressive mood, salt and sweet cravings, lightheadedness, and other vague symptoms. Numerous websites kind of mention that how to diagnose and treat adrenal fatigue. However, the Endocrinology Society and all the other medical specialities do not recognize the condition. So they do not recognize the condition. The endocrinologists are categorical. No scientific proof exists to support adrenal fatigue as a true medical condition. Yeah. This disconnect between conventional and complementary medicine adds to the frustration and the myth that's out there. In a recent review of 58 studies, it concluded that there is no, re no scientific basis to associate adrenal impairment as a cause of fatigue. The authors report the studies had some limitations, though. There was, the research included and used many different biological markers and questionnaires to detect adrenal fatigue. For example, uh, salivary cortisol is one of the most common oral tests used to make a diagnosis, which Dallas has spoken about. The cortisol level, when checked four times in a 24-hour period, was no different between fatigued and healthy patients in 61.5% of the patients. The review raises questions around what should get tested, blood, urine, and or saliva. The best time, how often, what, what ranges are considered normal, and how reliable the tests are, to name a few. In summary, there is no formal criteria to define a diagnosis of uh, adrenal fatigue. And it's important to make sure that, like, the lack of, like, an, a biological explanation can be disappointing to, to people as well. And it's that's not unusual for a generic answer from doctors to kind of go back and say there's nothing wrong with you this is all in your head mm. which is neither helpful or conducive to where that person is at rather than giving them saying right you may need to go and talk to someone look at your workload work at life balances you need to think of health as a full fully circular things health means something else dallas will have one measure of health and i'll have a different other measure of health my mental health is number one everything else can be can wait as long as my mental health is okay, well, then that's then everything else will tick. If my mental health isn't, my state isn't okay, well, then nothing ticks for me. And Dallas will be, well, his health, as he said, when he's on holidays, his health is really important. He keeps those habits in place, which he has said to me all fair just before we came on. So what a person could do is it's not easy. And symptoms associated with adrenal fatigue probably have multiple cases. Frequently, follow-up visits and a strong patient-clinical partnership are critical elements between the GP, the doctor, and the actual patient itself. They, an important word of caution, some medical professionals prescribe cortisol analogs to treat adrenal fatigue. Yeah, exactly. So that isn't helpful either. So cortisol replacement can be dangerous even in small doses. 
Unintended consequences can include osteoporosis, diabetes, weight gain, and heart disease. Regardless of what we call it, there are millions of people suffering from similar symptoms. And a personalized plan that involves counseling, medications, if needed, supplements, if needed, but supplements do not, they are supplemented diets, they do not outdo a diet. Lifestyle change, looking at your errors, setting your boundaries, and others could work for many. Improvement following these programs is slow and the evidence is weak. But with the it's really, really important to kind of shine a light for the people to actually show what direction they can actually go. The adrenal fatigue theory may fit like a glove in some symptoms and explain some symptoms, which are very real. But before buying expensive protocols or going over the internet to buy some sort of test or some sort of whatever it may be, you need to take a you need to take take a step back, take a deep dive into your lifestyle and look and re-examine it. The path to actually dealing with your stress is actually closer than you actually think it needs to like take a step back and actually ask the people around you to have that support and there was a recent paper uh by Katajani and uh Claud- claudio carter i think it was and they had they, they did another study on adrenal fatigue and they did a systemic review and they also said that adrenal fatigue does not exist so rather than using that as a label for yourself it's important to say right look at what your life is looking right now is there anything that can be edited is are you working too hours too hard are you training too much particularly for girls are you actually supporting yourself are you, are you stressed as shit are you anxious are you depressed look at those things first rather than going and wasting your money on those tests and then if if all and nothing changes after that and you're and you're getting the symptoms which dallas spoke about about the condition well then potentially could end that route but try to save your money on expensive tests and actually look at managing your lifestyle that little bit better. You owe it to yourself to try that. So hopefully that's a, a d- decent answer. I would also interject and well interject, just uh, pop in and then say that uh, the reason why it's not supported is because as your stress goes up, so does your cortisol response go up, right? Because you've got to think about it. The body is designed, in a sense, to ensure that it's mobilized for energy. So if you see cortisol simply as the hormone that allows there to be mobilized more energy in the blood, you'll notice that if you keep getting more and more stresses, the more and more response to cortisol starts to spike, right? If there was no cortisol, you'd be dead. And this is like the biggest thing because we don't actually realize that the whole mechanism between cortisol and glucagon is a very, in terms of its positive feedback and negative feedback loops, so they're kind of intertwined with each other. The glucagon can't do its job to mobilize glycogen and glucose for the blood without the use of cortisol. So if you get rid of it, you're going to have a really hard time because as soon as you eat, glucose is going to get into your body, no problem. And it's going to come, it's going to get rid of it. And now when you need energy again, you're kind of like, great. Glucagon can't do its job good enough. And that's why cortisol spikes to help it. We also see that if we blunt or completely destroy the ability in animals, when we get rid of their cortisol ability to produce, they die within a couple of days. Because as soon as a stressor occurs, they don't know how to mobilize. They can't mobilize enough energy. They're just gone. Now, we do have insufficiencies, which is a sense that the... Uh, adrenal glands when it comes to producing epinephrine as well as cortisol do have some parts where they have issues where they secrete less of the hormone and that does occur however simply just putting in cortisol as you spoke about is not a really good uh, mechanism to solve it because usually the reason why the secretion is not working usually comes down to tumors either on the adrenals or in the hypothalamus or a secretion problem from the hypothalamus problem. So when you look at it and address those symptoms, it then starts to fix itself. Just throwing in cortisol is going to cause one hell of a problem. But then as you pointed out, it's a multifactorial approach that you need to take to solving the symptoms of it. Yeah, and I think that's a nice lead into kind of like the next question in relation to the likes of say kind of what is the solution to kind of getting more protein into someone's diet and i think a lot of people will tend to go for protein bars and there's 
before Dada starts talking, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the protein bar before someone says it. Because the, I put up a post yesterday about protein bars and the DMs that I got afterwards, a lot of angry people was like asking me particular brands oh. of protein bars. And I was like, they're fine, but I wouldn't rely on them. It's like relying on sticking a fork in a toaster for a shock or a buzz. Sure, it will do the job, but there are better options. <laughs> Yeah, you are 100% right. It's like if you're going to look at it, obviously look at it by in terms of ingredients is one of the main sources of protein coming from something like milk because it's going to actually give you a high uh, kind of bioavailability of protein for starters, but also means that the calories aren't going to be as ridiculous as possible, which is one thing. Um, since there are protein bars that are coming to excess of 400 calories, and like by that point, why on earth did you not just have a whey protein shake and a chocolate bar? Easy. Would have come to the same thing, and you would have got more protein. But or else was chocolate whey. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the chocolate whey. I'm not gonna lie. I'm I'm quite weird of my selection of my flavor away. I always used to get grief for it when I brought it in, but I'm not even gonna mention it on this because I, I I'm not prepared for more hate. Um, I'm guessing it's like banana. Correct. <laughs> I'm that dude. <laughs> I'm that dude. Oh. Um, but I think like there's absolutely nothing wrong with protein bars. It's like everything, everything in moderation. But I know myself when I'm having protein bars, I will only ever have them when I'm on the go. Like say if I am going from Dublin to Kerry on a holiday or something like that, and I'm going to get in a cup of coffee, I'm looking for like a little bit of a, a kind of an energy buzz or whatever it may be, or just something to kind of take over the appetite, I will go for a protein bar. But I know as someone who suffers from IBS, they won't be amazing for my stomach. They will have they can have a laxative effect on some people. And if someone is struggling with lactose or struggling to break down lactose, they may not be the best solution. So you may find that you listen to this episode and be like, oh my God, this makes more so much more sense. I got a laxative effect, or I feel more bloated after them, or whatever it may be. I wouldn't I wouldn't like there's no problem you having them every day. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if you're someone that's on a diet right now and you're having like 18, 1900 calories. Uh, that isn't a prescription for anyone, but it's a decent range of calories for someone. Um, then you're probably giving up about 400 of those calories or 350 anyway to a chocolate bar when you could have a scoop away and you could potentially have a, and have like a Fredo afterwards and have saved yourself a hell of a lot more. Yes, they're handy on the go, but I rely on them all the time. No. And then it even comes down to like, as you were saying there with like people with IBS or lactose intolerant, that means you can get the um, natural. Hey, everybody, we got natural protein bars. And you're like, yeah, it's predominantly fat coming from nuts. So, and so if that is something you do want, you're not going to get the same amount of protein from it. So do notice that. And especially if you're getting something like a soy bar or something that's using obviously soybeans um, or some form of pea protein, like you can get a little bit higher. Often that it is predominantly going to be a carbon fat bar. I went, hence why they're beautiful for like pre-performance, like a game performance, or like, you know, you've just done a very long endurance exercise and you're like, I'm not really in the mood to eat something, but I still need energy. Those natural bars come in handy because it's like, you've got a nice amount of carbs hitting the system and then you get a little bit of fat. So it's like, yeah, pick what you want. Enjoy it. Don't overdo it. It really does create a laxative effect. I can attest to that. <laughs> so don't go crazy. Yeah. And I think like the, sometimes the quality and the protein in them isn't amazing. And I think I did an episode with Rebecca Nolan, Tita Triceps on protein bars at Gold Water though. She's the queen of the protein bar. Uh, she does reviews and stuff. So if you want to go over and review her stuff, uh, Rebecca's stuff is incredible. She's she's super, super intelligent um, and super, super um, mind, mindful of information mindful of information and uh, so she's done reviews on protein bars and quality and ratings and all this kind of stuff so I definitely head over to that that episode is very early on with the podcast I think it's probably episode five or something like that with Rebecca um, so just be mindful of the audio on it might not be amazing because I switched it up a little while after that um, then the next thing that kind of comes in it kind of leads in with kind of like the, the chocolate side of things which is food cravings mm. And the reasons for food cravings. 
and there's mixed kind of literature on this and that like they are very common they're sometimes they're difficult to ignore and typically manifest through intense urge or desire for a specific type of food and they can be done by if they come come from a variety of factors whether it be a physical or mental i would probably go to say that most cravings unless you're nutrient deficient probably 90 percent of food cravings are an emotional thing and people may not like that so when someone says to me i crave chocolate at a particular time in the month i crave salt at the particular time in the month unless you're nutrient deficient it's more as an emotional state so generally when pms comes along if you haven't dealt with your um emotions for the previous few weeks mm. what generally happens at pms time or that time of the month for whatever time that month of the, of the month it is for you generally those those kind of feelings of inadequacy or anxiety or whatever maybe can come to the head around that time and that can come for people going through women going through perimenopause as well they become a little bit more anxious because their estrogen levels are dropping down and the progesterone could be dropping down as well which is the progesterone is the one that could, could uh, kind of calms you down it's your yin to your yang it's your chill out hormone so if that's dropping down well then you're losing your soothing hormone so that could be at state and that could be why you're struggling to kind of like cope with your eating coping with your emotional eating and that's very difficult for someone to acknowledge because we've been put out to the media it's like oh here's something to cure your chocolate cravings here's a quick recipe for your chocolate cravings you don't crave chocolate you don't crave sugar you don't crave carbohydrates there's a reason why we go for those things though it's not cravings so the possible causes for some cravings and there could be several several factors and there's two main categories which is physical and mental feel feel free to jump in at any time Dallas, by the way um some of the physical causes that kind of come in are leptin and ghrelin leptin and ghrelin imbalances which is your hunger hormone and your full hormone and balance in these hunger and fullness hormones may cause certain people to experience more food cravings than others that could be that they struggle to cope with the emotion that is present some people do have an appetite regulation issue but it's very very seldom to happen but it does happen then there could be hormonal changes during pregnancy which can or may influence smell and taste receptors in turn causing your experience to intensify more cravings so i know some of the lads wives and stuff have had like pickles was one of them and crisps and pickled pickles and crisps i'm kind of like that's like it just sends the receptors a little bit off pms the changes in hormones like estrogen and progesterone that occur right before a girl's period can may intensify cravings for kind of carb rich foods but it's not carbs you're craving when the body becomes a little bit more anxious when the body can become a little bit more tired when due to the metabolism potentially speeding up around that time the brain is sending a message the brain is looking for the quickest hit of energy to the body the brain's primary source of fuel to get the quickest energy into the body is carbohydrates or sugar so generally what will happen when those foods are consumed is blood sugars will spike up and then they crash back down really quickly and then you'll find yourself looking for those quite quick quite quickly so that's why it's imperative to kind of go for whole grain options more often where possible aiming for it to keep the chocolate in because it's magnesium in it and magnesium can help with pms like symptoms i encourage my girl some of my girls to have chocolate every morning for breakfast and it's it's a weird thing but it builds a trust around the food it builds a trust because you, you don't see it as a negative because it's not just saying it's good or bad food but if you're if you're building the trust for yourself with the food when you're on your on your kind of so-called your your progressive days and you're feeling good days well then your lower days you're saying hang on well, I'm having this on my good days, so then I'm allowed to have this on my on my on my lower days, and we all have lower days, so it's Ooh. important to look at that as well. Yeah. Lack of sleep, 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 sleep. Vitamin vitamin S. Too little or poor quality sleep can disturb your levels of the hormones responsibility responsible for regulating your hormone, your hunger hormones, your fullness hormones, and your sleep wake cycles. Possibly intensify a few cravings, especially in the evenings when your energy levels dip. Especially if you've gone out for a few pints or a few GTs the night before, you may find that your lack of sleep because you don't. People say that I, I conked out when I went to sleep, or after a few drinks, you didn't. You just you had a really, really light sleep, and you wake up groggy or whatever maybe, and that's why when you wake up, you may feel like you want more fatty, carbohydrate-rich foods because you're tired and your brain's looking for that immediate hit. That's essentially what's happening. 
a, poor, a nutrient poor diet is is a massive element of it. If you if someone is kind of like struggling with the likes of kind of getting decent levels of protein in or fiber in, as more often than not. So say, emphasis on what I've just said there that those last few words more often than not. A diet that's low in these nutrients may cause you to feel more hungry. So protein is more filling and more satiating. That's why when you're on a diet, protein is really, really important. Fiber is really, really important for digestion, reduce bloating. It can also keep you fuller for longer. It takes up more space in your stomach. So if you think of your stomach like a plastic bag, if you throw some something into that plastic bag, it's going to take up space. That's essentially what you're doing with vegetables. Vegetables are class as well. So eat vegetables. Uh, but also, as I've spoken on a previous episode, your veggies and your fiber, if you are having painful periods, you need to shit your fucking period out. <laughs> so you need to get rid of the old estrogen in order for the new one to come along. And the only way for that to happen is to poo out the old estrogen. So eat your greens. Uh, poor hydration can also have a massive, massive impact. Ingesting too little fluids can intensify feelings of hunger. So if you're not getting enough water, you could be feeling weak. If you're not getting regular meals in, you could be feeling weak throughout the day and you could be like, oh, I'm having breakfast and then skipping lunch because there's a meeting on and then you're having dinner and then you're finding yourself hungry because you haven't paused after your dinner. You've just gone straight for the ice cream. You've still gone straight for a particular food and you're, you're bringing yourself into that surplus because you're not pausing. You're not waiting that 20 minutes. And if you're waiting that 20 minutes and still the emotion is there, food isn't going to solve that emotion. If it's not hunger, food ain't going to solve it. Your gut flora can also have an impact. There is some evidence that the type of bacteria present in your gut may influence the frequency and type of cravings. However, more research is needed to confirm on this. Physical activity can increase your physical activity, uh, can increase your hunger levels. So if someone is, particularly in runners, if someone is on a diet and they're running, because that's consistency, that's consistent exercise over for a very long period of time, that can increase your hunger. So when sometimes when, when kind of we're working with girls and they're like, I'm starving after kind of running and stuff, um, that may end up bringing them into a surplus. So it's kind of like getting your nutrition kind of based around it beforehand, setting yourself up for uh, the food after, also giving yourself that permission to have that little bit more if you need it. Yep. highly processed foods there's some evidence that highly processed foods rich in added fat and sugar may cause addiction like symptoms in turn possibly increasing savings cravings but more research is needed on that so any other ones that you're thinking on the car on the physical causes no like uh, obviously the last one we tipped on is obviously going to be at the forefront of my brain um often as well is remember that when processed food even though it does get break down it doesn't hit the same in terms of the body and what I mean, how it hits is the body doesn't actually go through a similar breakdown as it does normal organic natural food, put it in the biggest air quotations as possible. So we often see uh, more of a delay effect to this, the satiation with processed food. We also see less of a signal from the satiating hormones when it comes to processed food. Hence why when you see competitions of overeating, like, you know, where they go and go, how much like 10,000 calories you can do? It's never 10,000 calories of steak and veg. It's pizza. A lot of food. Oh, that's a lot of steak. Steak, my God, you'd be puking. Oh, your gut. Oh. Absolutely woefulness. So it's like, don't forget that as well. So hence why the craving occurs. Like, oh, I'm still hungry. It's like, well, purely pre, you actually probably ate something that hasn't um, increased your satiation and then on the um yeah leptin side of things i'm like leptin yeah leptin so often we often see like as you were saying that like leptin in and around can cause crazy cravings it's because leptin's needed for fertility especially in women you end up seeing that there's a natural increase for that and that's because if you think about it that's fertility time you know in and up to that window is fertility time so the body is now starting to see increases and that's what happens from the leptin side so it's like we often forget that a lot of these hormones within the body are regulatory mechanisms for other areas and the whole point of the body is to try and keep it in homeostasis but also get the job done and the job done is get your sperm get your eggs get them together and pass them on to the next generation so if that means i need to make you a little bit hungrier to make sure that if we do make a baby that we are going to be in a good position in terms of energy wise. So it's like, always think about some of these things are there, not because like, you know, it's they're trying to make your life harder. It's just there as a purpose to ensure that the offspring is made 
and get into the next generation. That's a bit it, really. So then I'm gonna I'm gonna play devil's advocate because I love doing this. Oh, yeah. I mentioned about the PMS side of things. So generally, from experience of working with so so many women at this age, you know what's coming, don't you? Yeah, I do. Uh, there's two types of girls: sweet v savory. <laughs> Yeah. What's the situation with those? And if someone's if someone says they they like chocolate over crisp, or they like crisp and pancakes over chocolate, whatever it may be, what's the situation there? Eat the damn food. I don't care. <laughs> it gets really annoying in that sense. The, the whole thing it comes down to is like you're not actually going to see an increase in metabolism. So yes, you are going to see the hormone fluctuations that are going to drive you to either say sweet or savory. Cool, but it's like. Your, your whole aspect of I want to push myself into a deficit for what reason at a time where you are stress compromised, where you are in a position where there's fluctuations, you are going through not only psychological but physiological changes in that time period. So it's like having a little bit of sweet stuff, having a little bit of pancakes, whatever that may be, if that is giving you a sense of I'm doing good, I'm feeling okay, cool. It's not going to break the bike. I hate when everyone's like, oh, yeah, but now I'm going to go into all problems and I'm going to put on fat. It's like, no, you're not. It's one little thing. Move on. And it's important to say, like, it's giving yourself that permission. So what I spoke about earlier about trusting yourself around the food, I know what's going to be said in some people's minds right now. It can preempt. It's like, I'll lose control if I start based on what evidence. Okay. Oh, okay. Based on what evidence? When you've done it before. Well, that's not, but you, you, you didn't, you're probably restricting yourself before. And that's why that, that has been the cause of that. But if you are giving yourself permission over time, will it happen every time? Absolutely not. But if you're giving yourself that permission over time on the, the days where you're feeling amazing and you're ready to go and take on the world, and then you're having, you're giving yourself permission to have it on those days rather than having it on the lower days, well, then that's going to build the trust and re kind of build that habit, rebuild that click in, internally in your dialogue to say, well, I can have it on this day. So I can definitely have it on this day. But being conscious of you may need that little bit more calories. And if you want to go into big, deep, deep, in di deep dive into that kind of side of things is there's an ebook in my bio, which will go through it. I am writing a book at the minute, which will come out. But there are episodes, female fat loss, female fat, fat loss myths there's so many episodes so type in my name female fat loss type in my name into get cravings type in my name pms whatever it is into spotify or itunes and you'll get all that details but you may need to give yourself that permission to have that little bit more food like 2 to 50 calories if you go over that that's okay too but your body is looking for a little bit more energy and if it's looking for a little bit more energy it's up to you to provide that food to it it's like going from dublin to go and half a tank of petrol you need to give it that extra little bit of food if it's 250 calories of extra chocolate and you feel you feel good nutritionally afterwards and you feel benefit of it well then that's the food for you but if it's a case of you're having a thousand extra calories of chocolate and you feel like shit well then that's the thing of like well where, what is the sweet point for me what do i actually need and what could i benefit from and that's the big thing because if we if we if we crave sugar our nose would be in a bag of sugar yeah. and that's not the case all the bags of sugar was making the pancakes, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just snore it right up. Um, <laughs> so oh, horrible. <laughs> yeah, we're really burned. Um, some of the mental causes and stuff, stress can definitely have an impact on, and when you have high levels of the of cortisol, which Dallas has spoken about a lot, they can be linked to kind of hunger cravings and more likelihood of stress or binge eating behaviors or emotional eating behaviors. But yeah, we need to look at that. I keep talking about like, if you listen back to the episode with uh, Jamie's diet guide, you listen back to the episode with Callum Stronach, listen back to the episode with Dallas and Jane, I think as well. And I'm one of the coaches corners. who talk about the difference between a definition of emotional eating and binge eating. Binge eating means you have no control. You cannot stop. You almost say have an outer body experience and blackout and you cannot stop your food, however hard you try. Emotional eating is you could stop if you want it. You just decide to press the fucker button. There's something very, very different there. We all emotional eat. That is something we need to all accept. We are emotional. Dallas's face is like, no. <laughs> we all emotional eat. If we didn't emotional eat, there will be no Christmas dinner. There will be no Easter. There will be no Christmas. Come on. You saw me. I ate pretty much three quarters of a cheesecake and then went on to have cookie cake as well. Cookie pie with like biscuits and everything. I'm like, hell yeah. Yeah. But how often did you do that? 
that's the big sentiment there. Once a year. Yeah. But you you give yourself permission to do that and you accept it. That's the big difference for it, Alice. But but there we go. It's like it's the permission, but also understanding that it's just like there was nothing wrong with the emotional eating. The issue is when that becomes a maladaptive behavior. When it's you, the emotion afterwards. Exactly. So it's like if you just had the chocolate and you overate and cool, and you looked at it and went, Yeah, I ate a whole bunch of chocolate. You accepted it, you understand why you did it. And they went, Cool. That's it. It's in the past. I can't change it. There is nothing I can do. There we go. But what people do is it's in the past. Let me worry about it, creating another stress response. And then another 40, 40, 50 minutes later, we get the rebound effect from the cortisol to try and bring its body back to homeostasis. And then we go, oh, look, and now we have another spike in food, which actually brings into another aspect about high cortisol, giving me another uh, pull a tidbit. Those who often have eating disorders often have a higher increase in cortisol. And that's because they end up going through a binge restrict cycle or they go through a sense of a complete reduction of food. And then there's more bursts of cortisol, because, not because of food, but also because of the stress response from not eating. So we often see it from anorexics who have high cortisol because obviously they try to reduce as much of the food as possible. And any thought or sight of food gives them an extra cortisol boost. And then we see it with like bulimic patients because every single time they eat food, they want to obviously purge it in a sense as well, which is causing another spike of cortisol. So if you think about it, if you have all these cortisol spikes throughout the day, your body is primed to try and get back to where it wants to get to, which is homeostasis. That's the point. So now you're trying to fight your body in the same sense. And that's where things get obviously very iffy. Yeah. I think some of the things that kind of can happen is your personality. So someone who has an addictive personality, that can be brought into it. Uh, trauma can be brought into it as well. I know that's Dallas's uh, thing, <laughs> jam at the minute. <laughs> Eating context. So say if you associate food with a certain occasion back from your childhood, for an example, if you um enjoyed say cooking bread with your granny or whatever it may be and that's a happy time for you and you're feeling a little bit low or feeling a little bit lonely or an emotion is present you may go for that uh, that particular food yeah. at that certain time your mood moods can also trigger certain foods um which can spark for the, the need for comfort foods with the likes of takeaways the likes of pieces and there's nothing wrong with those foods but if they're feeling, making you feel not amazing afterwards and making you feel guilt and guilt comes from not matching up to expectations. And then that whole thing latches on to perfection, which is generally what people try to be, or which we cannot be, which comes from trauma or your childhood. So it's this vicious loop, what people try to latch on to. But with the whole thing of nutrient deficiencies, there's more research needs to be done on it. Because one of the main ones is kind of like, well, salt cravings. Some people think that's a sodium deficiency. However, most people who have that salty food craving aren't actually deficient in that nutrient. No. So that's something to be conscious of as well. It also looks at the, some research suggests that men and women tend to crave different foods. Lads look for more savory stuff. Girls look for more sweet stuff. There's also one of the things that's going to blow people's minds right now is this research suggests that the less frequently you eat certain foods, the less likely you are to crave them. However, if cravings were initiated by a low intake of these foods, you would expect the exact opposite to happen. There's currently little evidence to support the idea that food cravings are caused by an insufficient intake of nutrients contained in certain foods. There's also non-craving of non-food items. Some people can crave as well, which is a little bit interesting as well. So some studies have suggested that like the likes of pica, uh, which is kind of cap happens in like um, in children and pregnant women. We don't know what that's from, but sometimes they can have like low iron or calcium or zinc levels and they can, their cravings for non-food items often resolve when the lack of nutrients are supplemented. So it's kind of looking at that, but that needs to be more research needs to be done on that. Cravings can be caused by a variety of different physical and mental factors. I would go and put my name on the record and say that 90% of our cravings 
are from emotions. If you're taking out the food out of your diet on a daily basis and expecting things not to happen when you're at a lower Mm -hmm. point, Mm -hmm. you're setting yourself up for a fall. You're going to pull that trigger. So why not try to set yourself up for success? Write down, we use the food and mood journal with some clients, write down how you feel before the food. So write down the time you've had the food, where you've had the food, like I was in the living room or whatever it may be. Write down the time of the day it was. Write down how you feel before it. Pause. Then write down how you have the food. Write down how you feel afterwards. If you've noticed a trend after like a couple of weeks and saying, well, I've noticed that when I'm stressed, I go for more comfort foods. But it's kind of looking at, well, why am I not sitting with the, with the emotion? It's probably because it's too difficult. But emotions are thoughts. Thoughts are beliefs. They are not facts. There is no evidence to them. And that's something that we need to look at. They are normally an urge and an urge can be diffused. And that's something that Mia was on the client interview on episode 198. And then Grace is coming on soon to talk about how we worked on the urges and fighting the urge and working with the urge and diffusing the urge. So I think that's everything on the, the food cravings. The last one is in relation to being impatient. And Dallas sent me a text before this saying he didn't want to do this one because he knew he'd lose his shit. <laughs> it's ironic because he'd be impatient. <laughs> so how to stop being impatient on weight loss? You need to know what your goal is. If your goal is to weight, lose weight and you keep stopping, then you don't know your why. And you're doing it our size. It's like getting into a car with your sat nav on, taking the wrong turn. Sat nav will bring you back to your direction. But if you're refusing to ignore your sat nav and go your own way, then nothing's going to change. You're not going to get back on through. But you need to understand your why. Ask yourself the five whys. There's an episode somewhere along the line on five whys. I think I've spoken about it with two or three guests as well about the five whys. You need to look at bringing non-scale victories or NSVs. It's something that we work an awful lot with at Team SWF and our group coaching clients is the non-scale victories. They can be strength goals. You also don't have to approve the weight on your bar or whatever it may be every week. It can be tempo. It can be with the band. It can be uh, hitting more reps, whatever it may be. It can be you're fitting into a dress that you've never fit into before. You can have more energy to play with your kids. You could have a higher libido. You could have more confidence. You could have sex with the lights on. You could have bought a new dress. You could have gone to a shop that you've never gone to before. You could be getting comments off people. You could be feeling more confident about yourself and owning your owning things. And just in general, NSVs will save a lot of hassle for yourself. If you're solely basing it off a weighing scales, what you cannot control the weighing scales. The weighing scales is a piece of plastic that is the relationship between you you and gravity at that one point in time. That's what it is. But if you're stepping onto it, you're probably putting your self-worth onto that scales. If you're feeling shit before and you're shit on it and then you're shit after it, you're setting yourself up for success. You need to look and say, right, write down beforehand how I feel before it. If you feel shit, don't step on it. Or you could do the other way of like, right, step on it anyway. And right, and feel shit. Was like ask yourself what what emotion is present. Is it like I feel like a failure? Well, failure isn't a feeling. Failure is linked to your self worth. Why is it linked to your self worth? Because other people accept me. So where does that come from? That probably comes from your childhood. That probably comes from the media being accepted. Probably comments from your parents. Probably comments from your family. See how ingrained this societal stuff is. The media stuff is, and this is the stuff that we work on our clients on a daily basis. We go down a route that some of them may not want to go down, but it's important for them to look at where certain things are coming from, where they're getting pulled from, and what direction they can be kind of catapulted in towards. You can need to compare your like weeks with your like weeks. Girls, this one's for you. Compare week one of your cycle post-bleed to week one of your cycle post-bleed from July to August. Week two, week two, week three, week three, week, week four, week four. Otherwise, it's like, it's like comparing chalk and cheese. There's too many hormone fluctuations, water fluctuations, all that kind of stuff in the, between those months or in between those weeks. Compare your like weeks with your like weeks. You need to know the difference between weight loss and fat loss. Weight loss is what it says in the scales. 
fat loss is how you look and how you feel in your clothes. If you're feeling better in your clothes and have more energy, why the fuck are you stepping on the scales to tell you how to feel? If you feel good, why would you risk it by stepping on it? Because I know what's going to come back now is because I want to know. You want to know what? You want to know what a, what a piece of plastic is telling you. When you know your better gauge, if that piece of plastic wasn't there, it wouldn't upset you. You're putting yourself worth on the scales again. Are your actions matching your outcomes? This is a very hard one for people to, to like, well, I want to lose weight, but are your actions actually matching that? Are you going out in the weekend for three or four days and literally going and having a dominoes after every single occasion? I'm all for people if they want to drink on the weekends, but it's, are you kind of stop, not having the takeaway? Or if you're having the takeaway, okay, fine. Well, then I would probably ideally go for a walk the next day. Well, I'm too hungover to go for the walk the next day. Well, then why don't we go for on the Monday and set yourself up, make a plan on the Sunday. Recover, get your regular meals in, get some meal prep in or whatever it may be. Know it takes time. Know it takes time. You don't, when your kid is learning how to walk, they're going to fall, but they get back up. It's the exact same thing. You don't give out to your kid. You don't berate your kid for that. So why are you berating yourself? I mean, get you, friends involved. But if you were in that situation as a child, please reparent yourself and accept that that is not acceptable behavior. That I said it. Uh, get friends involved. But also it has to be the friends that that you want to surround yourselves with. It's not people who are struggling with their own weight loss journey. And there's nothing against those people. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with those people. But it's surrounding yourself with people who are conducive and can point you in the direction you want to go. If those other people are potentially struggling with their own weight loss journey, are they the best people to drive you in the direction you want to go? Look, look, work with people and look with people who have walked the walk and talked the talk already. That's why I surround myself with the likes of Dallas Jane. Brian Keane, Paul Germany, that kind of stuff, and Steve Griffin, because they've done it. I would compare them to, like, I don't compare them, but I kind of, I look to them for certain things. Like with the book, I asked Brian for advice. With Paul, Paul was asking me for advice on it. With Steve, Steve was asking me for advice on his photo shoot. With Dallas, Dallas asked me for advice with clients and the female stuff. And then he was asking me for advice and business stuff. Jane was likewise. We all have these, that kind of circle. It's important to have that. And this is one of the talks that I'm doing in September in the Aviva with the Fitness Wellness Summit. And that's what my topic is. It's surrounding yourself with people and the importance of support during a weight loss journey. I'll be happy when is one of those famous lines. You won't be happy when. Because if you would be, if you were happy, then you would be there already. Exactly. So how can you know? If you know, if you know that you're going to be happy, then can I have a lot of numbers because you're awesome at predicting the future. It's all subjective. You don't know you're going to be happy. Right? You need to be honest because your goal potentially is all extrinsic and not looking at the intrinsic. If your goal is purely extrinsic, like my goal was when I did the photo shoot, you're, look, you're setting yourself up for a fall. You're looking for validation from others to be accepted by others when you haven't already accepted yourself. And that's very difficult for people to hear. If you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you're still not liking where you're at, it's understanding, well, we could all pinpoint and pinpoint things that we don't like ourselves in the mirror. But it's understanding what can we do in the meantime? Are our actions matching our income? Are there other non-scale victories we can look at? Are we putting ourselves worth into the mirror? Are we having a shit day? Have we slept the night before? Are we tired? Have we got PMS? Celebrate where you are at. Celebrate your wins celebrate those around you that doesn't mean it's like well i've lost five pounds i deserve this bottle of wine or this cheesecake that's not what i'm saying it's saying to yourself well i'm going to go out and get a pair of jeans that i haven't bought in a while set yourself non-scale victories like i'm going to get into a dress that i haven't got into for a long time and those kind of things but like we also have to realize the tagline of fitness weight loss whatever it maybe doesn't have an end goal doesn't have a finish line it's consistent. It's continuous improvement. It's that compound effect that a lot of people just don't want to do the work. And I know that was with Dallas, but Dallas probably would have said it a lot more aggressive and probably thrown in a few F words in there. <laughs> See the way to deliver it, Dallas? Yep, pretty much. <laughs> um, so there's cortisol tests, impatient, adrenal, adrenal fatigue, protein bars, stop being impatient. There's so much in there. No, oh, there is. And it's one of those, if anything has landed for you, please pop either of us a message. 
if you want to work with us and work on your why if you want to work with us on how to figure out how amazing you actually are as a person and understand why you do things the way you are right now confess in yourself don't put your self-worth into yourself don't put your self-worth from stopping you from actually making a change that you want to do if you want help dm the hardest part is that first message it's the hardest part if you truly want to change change is possible if you are still fearful of your self-worth is potentially in the way and you're having issues with your mental health please go and talk to someone and that's important to kind of put that caveat out there self-worth is one of those things that i think that says it to me all the time anyway imposter syndrome that says it to me all the time we all struggle with it i struggle with it all the time but i'm like the way i'm counteracting it is through action yeah but also like the book is scaring the fuck out of me by the way and dallas knows this <laughs> oh it's gonna be so good um so yeah I, and the guys I, the book wouldn't have been possible without you guys listening to the podcast and the support that you've given there's an ebook in my link in my bio which would be like the intro to the book it's very very fleeting it's like only 40 pages or whatever maybe it's free there's an audio book there if you want to do this podcast on all that kind of stuff on the female fat loss stuff if you want to work with us pop us dm if you want to work with us the link at the bottom of the the description and you can we can book in a chat if you don't want to work with us that's okay too and you're just looking for a chat that's amazing ask questions and and reach out if you need it dallas thank you so much for coming on i know i've kind of taken over the last like 20 minutes of that episode don't worry it's always a pleasure being on here and if anyone likes to hear more about hormones ask more questions exactly we love hormones um so yeah thank you guys for listening to us if you have enjoyed the episode please do leave a review and on the the shame watch podcast emphasis on the new title <laughs> thanks guys <laughs>